today. You hurt Grundy, flying man. And because you hurt Grundy, you die. Solomon Grundy's turning Metropolis into a swamp. I've got to defeat him fast. But in the name of Krypton, how? Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure, the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode, he was zombie when zombie wasn't cool. Greetings and welcome to the third episode of the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue. A proud and eventually worthy member of the Fire and Water podcast network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukonori, and I am so delighted to be here. In fact, I'm as ecstatic as a champagne bubble that had leapt over the rim of the glass. Solomon Grundy happy too. For Solomon Grundy, I'm co-host this time. Solomon Grundy is so happy, he feel like uh, a bubble of swamp gas that uh, uh, blorped out a swamp. Yeah. A very good effort, Mr. Grundy, but please do not feel that you have to... Query. Please explain why you equate happiness with the state of an alcohol-filmed bubble of carbon dioxide one second before it self-destructs. I was wondering that myself. Maybe Zoom was saying he was so happy he could die. Well, my metaphor was to describe how I feel so giddy and carefree, not the- Solomon Grundy want to be carefree too, but Grundy feel like bubble of swamp gas. You do not have to feel like swamp gas, Grundy. You too can feel like a champagne bubble if you want. Just before you go pop. Mr. Manning. Solomon Grundy, thinking of snarky comeback line. Well, while you do that, allow me to introduce the done-in-one wonder we are spotlighting today. Superman, Volume 1, Issue 301. Cover dated July of 1976, but according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale on April 8th, 1976, though I did not read it until a few months later when it arrived in a care package sent to me by my Uncle Kenzo from the U.S. to my family's flat in Singapore, where I was living at the time. Now, this was actually the first time I had encountered Solomon Grundy in the comics. I originally thought he was essentially a Swampland takeoff of Marvel Comics' Incredible Hulk character, not realizing at the time that Grundy had predated the Hulk by 18 years. Solomon Grundy, not date anyone! No, Grundy, I said pre-dated. How can you date someone before you date someone? No, Terraman. I had meant that Grundy was created 18 years before the Hulk first appeared in a Marvel comic. And we will get into the details of Grundy's creation later in the program. For now, let us marvel at the cover of Superman Volume 1, Issue 301, penciled by the illustrious Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name! Very nice. And inked by Bob Oxner. 
Solomon Grundy's smash annoying flying man. Indeed, a huge figure of Solomon Grundy stood at a city street corner, angrily batting Superman into the foreground with a two-fisted hammer punch. The brilliant use of facial expression and body language suggested that Superman had been knocked senseless by the blow. The cover did a good job of teasing the story and had effectively set up Grundy as a legitimate threat to Superman. And there was a lot of activity going on besides the two-fist hammer punch. There was an overturned car and a broken police motorcycle on either side of Grundy, as well as the unconscious body of a police officer that laid sprawled on the crosswalk at Grundy's feet. A woman leaned out of an open window of the building behind Grundy, looking as if to complain about the noise outside and was instead shocked by the action on the cover. A squad of policemen with guns and rifles started to charge into the scene from the far background. It's a lot of activity indeed, and yet the composition on the cover was a little lackluster compared to a similar scene I saw later in the interior pages. And I suspect that the cover layout was actually done by another artist, most likely Carmine Infantino, who had done a majority of the cover layouts for DC in the late 1960s and still continued to produce a number of cover layouts at the time of this story. I could not find any documentation to verify that, but a different layout artist would explain why the 10-foot Grundy appeared to be two stories tall in this picture. Solomon Grundy here, he looked taller on TV, too. Skipping over the hostess advert on the inside front cover, we come to the opening splash page that, to me, would have been a better illustration for the cover. Solomon Grundy lifted a city bus that was filled with people over his head with both hands, ready to throw it, while Superman swooped in from off-panel and drove a punch square into the marshland monster's gut, with apparently no effect. However, Solomon Grundy declared that Superman had indeed hurt him, and because Superman hurt him, Superman will die. Superman, meanwhile, noted that Grundy was turning Metropolis into a swamp and that he needed to defeat him fast. But how? And it was at my reading of this thought balloon that I noticed that the city streets in this busy downtown intersection were flooded with ankle-deep swamp water. Swamp gas bubbled from the green muck as wild vegetation twisted around a building in the background. Like the Bronze Age Superman comic book we covered in the previous podcast episode, page one was another thematic opening splash like those used in a majority of Silver Age DC comic stories. It served to tease the upcoming battle that would take up a majority of this story. And I love all of the little details found in the artwork here, from the people running away in the background to the advertisements on the bus promoting a UNICEF charity performance by Superman at the Metropolitan Forum. And the brilliance should come as no surprise given the credits to this story. Solomon Grundy wins on a Monday. Writer Jerry Conway. Artist Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And Bob Oxner. Editor Julius Schwartz. The story had an impressive start on pages two and three, which was an action-packed two-page spread with a Superman sequence taking place across the top half and an interlude sequence across the lower half. But I am getting ahead of myself. The story began at 5.31 p.m. on the Monday when Solomon Grundy won at 402 Garden Avenue, Metropolis, 
a somewhat large man dressed in a reddish-brown pinstripe suit and hat, who was either about to enter or had just finished exiting his car parked on the curb, was surprised by the arrival of three green-garbed helmeted men with rifles and portable jetpacks who descended from the sky from all sides. Do yourself a favor, pal, one barked. Don't move. Yeah, declared another. We got you surrounded. But then there was another voice. True, gentlemen, but now I've surrounded you. That voice belonged to Superman, who came up from below the street, breaking off the section of the pavement and sidewalk underneath the armed goons, their victim, and his car, and flying away with all of them. After this impressive and blatant display of property damage, beautifully rendered by the always illustrious Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name! Superman flew the makeshift asphalt platform high above the city, and two of the masked gunmen, which we could now see had a stylized skull symbol on their chests as well as on the front and back of their helmets, expounded to themselves that the Man of Steel must have found out about their planned shakedown of their victim, and instead of simply using their portable jetpacks to fly away, they instead resorted to using their self-described laser rifles to try and burn Superman to charcoal. That did not seem to be a wise course of action, for if they had succeeded, would not the portion of the street simply fall several hundred feet? Well, yes, that is true, Lenos. But again, they had portable jetpacks, so the only one who would be really worried was their intended victim. Of course, the laser fire had no effect, and Superman lamented on how disappointed he was by his adversaries. While well-equipped, they seemed to have no knowledge of Superman's invulnerability nor of his heat vision, which Superman used to melt the laser rifles to inoperability. In the next panel, Superman descended with his pavement platform of people in front of a police station, all the while complaining about the organization the masked men represented, named Skull, being demonstrably pathetic. Not only were they, quote, wasting their time by threatening this particular victim, whom Superman named as Samuel Simeon, a small-time hood, but Skull also leaked word of this plan, somehow, which was why Superman was there to catch them all in the act. And I should add that these three Skull men wearing portable jetpacks had made no attempt to flee by flying away. Perhaps, Perhaps they, they had, had insufficient, insufficient fuel and were intending to get away in Entity Samuel Simeon's vehicle. Most likely they knew that dog won't hunt. Once Super melted their irons, they had the sense to throw up the sponge. Now, by this time, I had been reading Superman comics for almost two years, though I was not able to find every issue of Superman or Action Comics that was sold at the news vendors during that time, especially after my family had moved overseas. But given Superman's apparent familiarity with the Skull organization, I had at first thought that this gang had appeared in previous Superman stories, and that this expository dialogue was just to inform new readers, or relatively new readers, of who these long-time villains were. It would be years later, thanks to the Skull entry in DC's first edition of Who's Who, that I would be surprised to discover that this story was actually the very first appearance of Skull. As Superman continued to complain about how the pathetic antics of the Skull organization, quote, take all of the fun out of being a superhero, the story moved to an interlude to... The Other, the other side, side of, of space. space. Nice touch with the reverb, Terraman. My thanks. My pleasure. To be precise, the Other Side of Space referred to the dimension occupied by Earth 2, 
home of the legendary heroes of DC Comics' golden age, the Justice Society of America, as well as their foes, including... Solomon Grundy, take over story now. Solomon Grundy stood trapped in slaughtered swamp by Green Energy Shield. Energy Shield made by two Green Lanterns. Grundy hate Green Lantern and hate other Green Lantern too. They want to trap Grundy in swamp forever. But Grundy smashed shield, so Grundy be free, free, and Grundy smash again, and again, and again, and again. I think we get the point, Grundy. And just let me say that this panel shows a wonderful depiction of you pounding your head against the- Why little Professor Man interrupt Grundy's story? Oh, I'm sorry, Grundy. I didn't think that I was- Little Professor Man need to think more, like Grundy. Grundy think about two green lanterns. Then Grundy remember hearing about two flashes and two Earths. And then Grundy realize, if there are two Earths, maybe they be two Solomon Grundys? I like how the omniscient caption box had taken a little playful jab at you here, Grundy. It read, quote, Reader, this is a historic moment. For the first time since his creation, Solomon Grundy has had an independent idea. That not true. Solomon Grundy had independent ideas before. Thoughts like, hate Green Lantern, kill Green Lantern. Solomon Grundy come up with those himself. But little Professor Man interrupt Grundy again before Grundy finish Grundy's part of story. Oh, yes, my apologies. Please, go ahead, Grundy. Witness now as Grundy act upon Grundy's idea. Grundy turn from Lantern Shield to walk deep into Shadowed Swamp. Solomon Grundy finished now. Professor Zoom speak. Thank you, Grundy. And may I say that was a very eloquent conclusion. That's cause he pretty much read the little wordy box at the end of the page. Uh, if I may back up a little, a panel that was skipped over had given a very concise description of the origin of Solomon Grundy, which was essentially the following. Not real life, only a weird distortion of it, Solomon Grundy is said to have been created by the strange chemical reaction of sunlight on Swampland. Solomon Grundy was born on Monday. Indeed, the caption also clarified that, quote, After numerous rampages, you were imprisoned in this swamp by the Green Lanterns of Earth-1 and Earth-2. Like Solomon Grundy say, two Green Lanterns. Solomon Grundy hate Green Lanterns. Indeed, sir. Of course, there is much more to the story of how Solomon Grundy came to be, and regarding those numerous rampages, perhaps now may be a good time to... Uh, a good time to let the listeners know that we will talk about that later in the program. Right now, let us continue with page 4 of Superman, Volume 1, Issue 301. Back on Earth 1... A police sergeant in front of the entrance to the police station lifted his cap in disbelief as Superman lifted the three masked enforcers with one hand, holding them all by the straps of their jetpacks. The action ace explained to the sergeant that his captives were members of Skull, an ultra-secret organization that apparently hassled Mr. Samuel Simeon as part of a plan to take over the crime cartel in Metropolis, now that Intergang was out of business. And I should note here that both Superman and Clark Kent put Intergang out of business, at least for a little while, in the previous storyline told in Superman Volume 1, issues 296 to 299. You're not fooling me no more, Professor. 
I know for a fact that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person. Oh, indeed, Mr. Manning. I had meant that he had foiled different aspects of Inner Gang's plans in both his Superman and Clark Kent identities. But back to page four of the story. Mr. Simeon had taken offense to Superman's accusation that he had ties to any crime cartel in Metropolis, being Inner Gang or Skull. Simeon then threatened Superman that if he tried to tie him to one, he would sue the Man of Steel for libel. Superman was unmoved by the threat of legal action. You're a big man, Simeon, he replied, but by the time your crime connections are exposed, I promise you'll be a small one. As Superman finished this response, the panel showed Superman flying away as Simeon shook his fist at him while the police sergeant and another officer led the skull thugs inside the police station at gunpoint. Simeon was still beside his car, by the way, which was still atop that massive chunk of Garden Avenue pavement that Superman essentially left on the sidewalk in front of the police station. I suppose this was how he helped keep city workers employed, at the cost of city taxpayers. Query. Why did Entity Samuel Simeon use the term libel, meaning a written defamation or a false statement that is damaging to a person's reputation published in print media, as opposed to slander, which is making such a false statement verbally. Was Entity Samuel Simeon possibly hinting that he knew Superman was secretly Clark Kent, newspaper reporter? Well, actually, Clark Kent was a television news anchorman in this story. But that is an interesting question. I would need to look into later issues of Superman that dealt with the Skull subplot to find out for sure. Why don't we check that during the next podcast promo break? That will not be necessary. I have already scanned the files containing Superman Family, Issue 182, Superman, Volume 1, Issue 310, Superman Family, Issue 184, Superman, Volume 1, Issues 315, 316, 317, 323, 324, and 325, and DC Comics Presents, Volume 1, Issue 63. And there is no indication that Organization Skull was aware of Superman's dual identity, and Entity Samuel Simeon did not appear in any of those issues. Superman Volume 1, Issue 301 was his first and only appearance, unless he is the same Samuel Simeon from the Angel and the Ape comic book series, but that would be illogical. Given that the Samuel Simeon from the Angel and the Ape comics was a guerrilla cartoonist and part-time private investigator who also... <laughs> that lame He can talk a donkey's hind leg clean off if you let him. I am uncertain why one would perform such an amputation, but it would take much more than verbally... Let us cut to the interlude, shall we? Back at Slaughter's Swamp... Grundy remember. Grundy walked to center of swamp at the glowy bubbly part. Grundy thought maybe on other earth is another Solomon Grundy, someone like me, someone to be my friend. So Grundy go to other earth, no matter how long it takes, I go, I go, I go. And as Grundy proclaimed this, the marshland monster vanished from sight. The omniscient caption box on the final panel of page four stated that, true to his word, somehow, in some way, Solomon Grundy goes. Solomon Grundy not go anywhere. Grundy's still right here. I meant in the story, Grundy, but this is actually the ideal time for us to go. Go to a podcast promo break, that is. 
And when we return, we will find out just where Grundy had gone. Solomon Grundy already say, Grundy's still here. Why no one listened to Grundy? Listeners, it's your friend PJ Frightful. That's PJ as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. Solomon Grundy, welcome y'all back to One and Done Wonder Show Podcast. You mean the Done and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show? That what Grundy say. Grundy and Little Professor Man covering Grundy's story in Superman 301. Solomon Grundy win on Monday. Whole story takes place on Monday, Solomon Grundy won. Though Solomon Grundy don't remember winning. Well, hopefully this podcast will help refresh your memory. We had left off on the last panel of page four, in which Solomon Grundy had somehow disappeared from the center of his Green Lantern prison on Earth 2's Slaughter Swamp. How in tarnation did you even pull that off, Grundy? Grundy just wanted to go, so Grundy go. I have a theory or two on how Grundy had managed to step out of the Earth 2 dimension, Mr. Manning, which we will get to later. Right now, let us continue at the top panel of page five, which showed a dramatic angle of the galaxy building on Earth-1's metropolis, and a meticulous sequence of nine super-speed after-images of Superman as he approached the building while covering his red and blue uniform with a blue suit, that I now knew was compressed in a secret pouch in his cape, so that his civilian identity of Clark Kent, WGBS TV news anchorman, landed through the window of his office in panel two. Meanwhile, in the hallway right outside, Steve Lombard, WGBS sportscaster and cheeky office foil to Clark Kent, guided a young woman in a green pantsuit named Terry to Clark's office, apparently at her request. Though why a gorgeous girl like you wants to meet a zero like him when you've got Steve Lombard around, he boasted, though he most likely thought he was being charming. Terry immediately rebuffed the advances of this would-be Casanova, saying that she liked the shy type. "'It's your funeral, little lady,' Lombard retorted as he opened the office door, while Clark picked up his just-type bulletin of the skull incident with Superman. 
Lombard introduced the woman to Clark by her full name of Terry Cross, adding that she said Clark, quote, turns her on, though I can't see why or how, he scoffed. In the next panel, Terry Cross is eyeing Clark adoringly, telling the anchorman that she just had to meet him and that she watched him all the time on the 6 o'clock news. She added that she had met Steve Lombard at lunch and he promised to introduce them. Most likely an attempt to get sit in that pretty little filly, I reckon. Uh, yes, most likely. Clark asked Ms. Cross if she worked for Galaxy, which may explain how she met Steve at lunch. Terry admitted that she was actually a, quote, groupie who loved getting next to stars. Stars? Clark asked incredulously to the woman who was suddenly cradling his arm. Steve Lombard turned away in astonishment of why such a, quote, fantastic chick like Terry would throw herself at Clark Kent, especially since Kent had no clue of what he should do. I know what to do, he lamented to himself as he watched Clark and Terry walk arm in arm towards the newsroom. But do girls throw themselves at me? He then pondered, maybe it's his aftershave. There's something about that there aqua velva man. I like how poor old Steve Lombard was all at sea at that panel there. Indeed, I must say I love the artwork by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. In this galaxy office sequence here. The expressions and the body language were brilliantly done, especially in panel three when Steve opened the office door and we see Terry was genuinely gushing over Clark without saying a word. And then there's the, oh, come on, look on Steve Lombard's hand-covered face on panel five as Terry, quote, throws herself at Clark. And despite the small panel size, Mr. Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, is able to deliver extensive detail throughout, from the vehicles and people and subway entrances on the streets of Metropolis in panel one, to the trash bins in the office hallway in panel two, to the typewriter keys on panel three. These details added a strong sense of setting that truly placed me right into the scene with the characters, and yet with a minimal amount of line work so they do not appear to be too cluttered. And I should credit that last aspect to the inker, the late great comic artist Bob Oxner, for adding just the right amount of his own stylistic flair to the pencils of Mr. Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name! Before we could turn to the next page, we had one more interlude, this time a single panel that depicted the timeless limbo between the dimensions of Earth's 1 and 2. Through the misty void, Solomon Grundy lumbered forward with stern determination. Turning the page, we were graced with another two-page spread of panels across pages 6 and 7. Starting with the top row of six panels, Clark Kent began his 6 o'clock news broadcast, leading with the story of the Skull Agent's attempt to kidnap alleged crime boss Samuel Simeon. I smell a libel lawsuit a-coming. That, that is slander. What I said taint slander, just my honest opinion. The camera angle was from behind Clark's right shoulder, looking toward the camera operator, as well as Terry, who was making an affectionate wave to Clark, while Steve Lombard eyed Terry's infatuation with disgust. And again, despite the small panel, the minimal line work and brilliant use of body language by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, conveyed Terry and Lombard's emotions that brilliantly accentuate Lombard's thought of how he, quote, just can't stand it. In panel two, which had taken place less than eight blocks away, according to the caption box, 
Solomon Grundy arrived in Midtown Metropolis, stepping through a dimensional hole in the air onto a busy city sidewalk. His ten-foot frame towered over all the passerby. Solomon Grundy kindly asked passerby for help to look for other Solomon Grundy. Kindly asked for help? You picked up a terrified middle-aged businessman off the ground and asked if he was the other Grundy, and then tossed him into the panicked crowd. Businessman no look like Solomon Grundy, so Grundy look elsewhere. Grundy find other Solomon Grundy, or Grundy destroy. Panel 5 cut back to the WGBS news studio, this time from an opposite angle to panel 1. A tiny clerk Kent at the news desk, far in the background, was about to read a lighter news story involving 12 Boy Scouts, which was interrupted by a frantic crewman who burst through the back door of the studio in the foreground, proclaiming that a monster was sighted in the streets and that they should call a camera crew as well as the National Guard. Panel 6 showed a close-up of a worry-stricken Clark Kent, his brow furrowed in distress as he wondered how he could deal with this monster menace as Superman while he was on camera as Clark Kent. But then he realized that, yes, there was one way. And the final panel of this spread stretched across the bottom half of the two pages. It was a widescreen cinematic shot of Solomon Grundy as he stood in the middle of a busy metropolis intersection, picking up a car to have a close look at the driver. Car driver, not other Solomon Grundy, either. The traffic of various cars and taxis and buses had ground to a halt as several panicked people were fleeing from Grundy in all directions. There was even a hot dog vendor pushing his umbrella-covered cart away frantically, spilling paper cups and lids as he went. But there were a few frightened people on the right-hand side of the panel that appeared to pause, awestruck at the sight of a crimson streak speeding through the smoggy midtown air straight toward the towering marshland monster, a streak formed by the wind-dragged red cape of Superman as he arrived on the scene. I could not get over how epic this cinematic lower panel was. This was the first time I had experienced this method of panel layout in a comic book, and again, the clever use of detail by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And Bob Oxner throughout, from the people to the vehicles and the background. All of the buildings had windows. It was all dead brilliant. The first caption box of this panel stated that this scene had taken place less than 60 seconds after Clark had figured out how he would go into action as Superman. And the final caption box directly asked the reader... Wait a minute, what about Clark Kent? <laughs> well, obviously, since we're seeing Superman, Clark Kent must have made some poor excuse to get out of the... Actually, as we turn to page 8, the first panel revealed that one of the buildings at this midtown intersection had a street-level electronics store, and the televisions in the display window were tuned to the WGBS news program. On the screens, Clark Kent read the urgent news bulletin of a strange creature in the midst of a rampage on Market Street. At the same time that Superman continued to streak toward that strange creature in that Market Street intersection. What the Sam Hill? Indeed, Mr. Manning. As we can see, the caption boxes in this panel again addressed the reader directly, stating that Clark was still on the air and on the job. But how? That question was immediately shelved in order for the rest of the page to focus on the upcoming action. But before we get to that, I have to say that I loved how Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name! 
was able to use that tiny sliver of the background on the left side of this small panel to essentially redraw that previous cinematic scene in miniature scale and from a different angle. And this panel had taken place a second or two later, I suppose, as Superman was closing in a little further on Grundy as he was setting the car back down. I also noticed the car you were holding on the previous spread was now facing the other direction in this panel as you were putting it down, Grundy. Grundy twirled car around to check passenger side. The passenger seat was empty. Ah, well, that explains it. And I suppose it was a good thing that you did that, as it allowed the opportunity for the driver to bolt from his car in the next panel as Superman continued his approach. And it was on panel two of page eight when Superman finally realized with whom he was about to confront. Great Krypton, it's Solomon Grundy from Earth 2, he thought to himself as he charged at the monster. Grundy here whistling wind noise. So Grundy turned round and saw eleven flying men attack. But they all bounce off Grundy. Grundy's stronger than eleven flying men. Grundy is referring to another brilliant use of multiple afterimages to signify the great speed at which Superman rocketed at Grundy. And with a loud WOM sound effect, the Man of Steel bounced off the marshland monster like a rubber ball. Grundy say that already. Why little Professor Man mansplaining for Grundy? Mansplain? I, I was simply clarifying for the listeners who do not have the comic book in front of them that the- Grundy already said little Professor Man was mansplaining. Now little Professor Man mansplaining his mansplaining. Grundy hate mansplaining. You think Grundy not smart? Grundy very smart. O okay, calm down Grundy. I did not mean to- Little Professor Man talk too much. He's coming around. Hey, Professor. Oh, my head. What hit me? Grundy did. Lucky for you, it was just a little love tap. You've been out for hours. But fortunately, we can edit all that time out so the listeners will never know. Uh, well, that's something at least. It's not very becoming for a podcast host to be unable to manage his co-hosts. And Grundy has something to say to you. Grundy... Uh, Grundy, sorry, Grundy, knock you out. Grundy over, uh, over, uh, overreacted. Yeah, what lame computers say. Grundy not over-attack you again. <sighs> That's good to know. And I will try not to interrupt you going forward. Sound good? Now, as soon as this headache goes away, we can... Here, Professor, drink this. What is this? Fluvian Lasma Root Extract. It's what I used to deal with hyperspace sickness when I was a young'un. Till I acclimated. Should straighten out your upper story in no time. Okay. Oh! Oh, that's really bitter. Oh. It's like the Leong Cha I used to drink in Malaysia. Just needs a little salted plums to off... Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Oh, that, that stuff works fast. Don't say I never did nothing for you. Oh, I never do. Thank you, Terraman. I'd ask for more of that remedy to use in my day job, but you and I both know these interstellar assets of yours tend to work best in the podcast studio. 
Now, where did we leave off? Eleven flying men bounce off Grundy. Ah, yes. Page 8, panel 2. Superman charged at you and bounced off you like a rubber ball, sending him hurtling up in the air. In the next panel, high above the city intersection, Superman had reoriented himself and began to dive back toward Grundy, who was watching his approach from the street. Superman noted to himself and the reader that he had actually felt the impact of the ricochet and that somehow Grundy had become more powerful than he was before. So this time he will not pull his punch. Solomon Grundy not pull his punch too. Flying Man bothered Grundy. So soon as Flying Man was close enough, Grundy swapped Flying Man away. Indeed, and that was quite a dramatic shot laid out in this panel by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. A worm's eye view from behind you as you interlaced your fingers into a double fist hammer and essentially knocked Superman away like a baseball. Little Professor Man, mansplaining again? Oh, oh no, no sir, I was talking about the artwork, see? Oh, artwork, artwork very good. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Capture Grundy's good side. Ah, uh, if you say so. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Is very good at that. And I suppose, Mr. Grundy, that you are one of the few people who could actually get away with interlacing your fingers in a double fist hammer punch like that. It's actually better to clasp one's hands because interlacing would pose a greater risk of injuring or even breaking the fingers on impact. In either case, for those of you out there in podcast listening land, please do not try this at home. Page 9 followed Superman's trajectory after Grundy knocked him away. In a sequence of three panels, Superman essentially nicked the top edge of a high building, which slowed his momentum enough so he would come to a stop when a corner of his cape snagged on a protrusion of a broadcast pylon antenna of a neighboring skyscraper. These three panels are completely dialogue-free, with just a crashing sound effect as Superman nicked the building. The third panel is a wonderful display of body language as Superman's hurtling form awkwardly tipped forward after his cape had become caught. Ha <laughs> ha, makes me want to up and have these thar panels framed. In the next panel, which takes up the majority of the page, Superman gripped the latticework of the antenna to swing himself around, pausing to rub his aching forehead with the back of his hand and lament to himself that he had never been hit like that in his entire life. Never. Superman then acknowledged that, however he had gained it, Grundy had tremendous power that may even exceed that of the Man of Steel. He considered that the entire Justice League may be required to take Grundy down. But alas, his fellow leaguers were off on a mission in space, so it would have to be Superman's responsibility to stop Grundy from destroying the city. Please allow me to pause here to point out that the intricate line work for the buildings and pylon antenna on this page, and panel 4 in particular, showed an incredible amount of meticulous detail on the part of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name! As well as a strong sense of continuity, panel 4 actually included the damage on the clipped building from panel 1, and it was redrawn from a slightly different angle, and we could clearly see that it was the same building. Mr. Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, also maintained great continuity in the background of panel 5, which showed Superman back at street level and flying toward Grundy, 
who was busily ripping open the corner of a restaurant to see if the other one was inside. We could clearly see that the action on this panel was still taking place in the same intersection shown previously on page 8, by showing another angle of the Jaffrey Co. Theater and the Infantino restaurant. Even the purple automobile Grundy had picked up earlier laid abandoned on the street in the foreground, and was actually starting to become bogged in a mass of swamp water and vegetation that seemed to erupt from under the street at the spot where Grundy had once stood. And backing up to the Jaffrey Co. Theater and the Infantino Restaurant, it was either penciler Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, or inker Bob Oxner that decided to have a little fun here and peppered in the names of DC creative staff on building signage throughout the city backgrounds. Sharp eyes would see references to Terry Austin, Bob Wyacek, Rick Estrada, Carrie Bates, and Joe Kubert. I also saw a crop sign in the last panel of page 8 that ended with an RTZ, which I believe is safe to assume was a reference to Julia Schwartz. But back to the story at the top of page 10. Superman approached behind Grundy as we see the restaurant patrons fleeing into the background. Superman reached under Grundy's, um, armpits in what appeared to be a move in order to halt his rampage. Superman reasoned that someone must have brought Grundy from Earth-2 to Earth-1 Metropolis for some reason, and demanded that Grundy tell him who and why. Grundy told Flying Man that no one brought me there. Grundy walked there on his own. Grundy walked to find the other. And looking at the artwork in the second panel, which was a tighter shot of Superman grappling Grundy, I realized that Superman was not trying to just hold Grundy back, but to actually pick him up and fly him away. And through the brilliant facial expression and body language by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name! I could see that Superman was visibly straining and astonished that Grundy suddenly became so heavy that the Man of Steel could not lift him. Grundy hated Flying Man because he was keeping Grundy from finding the other. So Grundy reached behind Grundy's head and grabbed Flying Man by a shirt, like this. <gasps> then Grundy flip him over Grundy's head and throw him into ground. <laughs> and Grundy told Flying Man, you stop bothering Solomon Grundy or you die. Oh my, Grundy, what have you done? Terra Man. Entity Solomon Grundy hurled Entity Terraman through the floor and into the sublevel below. That was a rhetorical question, Lenos. Terraman? Terraman, please respond. Are you alright? Mm. I've been better. Luckily, my duds are energized to project a force field for just such a thing. I reckon Grundy's getting a little too much into this here story. Grundy's sorry for throwing Cowboy Man. It's just, Grundy hate Flying Man so much. The Flying Man is not here, Grundy. I'm glad you are unhurt, Terra Man. And I wish I had thought of borrowing one of your force shields for myself before I had started this program. While you're down there, do you mind setting up the Done in One Wonders electronic mailroom segment? <sighs> way, way ahead of you, Professor. Nice to know we agree on how to make... Lemonade. Thank you, Terraman. Mr. Grundy, my wife told me that I was crazy to host a podcast with former comic book supervillains as co-hosts. Can you please help me prove her wrong?
a rather lofty goal, given that Namiko Yukonori has been correct 99.99997% of the time. When has Namiko Yukonori ever been wrong? Whenever she tells me that her dress makes her look fat. And, hopefully, when she said that this podcast was a crazy idea. So... Grundy say Grundy was sorry. And, and Cowboy Man is okay. Uh, and, and Grundy fixed floor, too. Watch. What are you... Wait, Grundy, don't... Dining table, cover hole in floor nicely. Namiko never know. At least not until dinner time. Perhaps you should take her out. I will definitely do that. And in the meantime, you three are going to go to the Home Depot to get what we really need to repair this floor. For now, let's try to finish the program without breaking anything else, okay? Okay. Now then, Grundy was obviously showing a little restraint with Terraman just now. Because we found out in the story, after five pages of adverts, that that spectacular action of Solomon Grundy flinging Superman through the street pavement had knocked the Man of Steel unconscious as he inelegantly fell into the sewer below. This happened on the first panel of page 11, by the way, and the second panel showed the Man of Tomorrow drifting away on a gentle sewer current. Meanwhile, in panel 3 and on the surface, Grundy stomped away from the Superman-sized hole in the pavement, while a GBS news van pulled into the scene through the ankle-deep swamp water that had apparently flooded the entire city block. The word balloons told us that the occupants of the news van were Terry Cross and Clark Kent, but we know that this could not be Clark Kent. For in the next panel, after Clark and Terry decided to ruin whatever shoes they were wearing by stepping out of the van, an arrow-headed caption box pointed at the Clark Kent figure with the words, Again, who is this guy? That's what I'd like to know. Clark was carrying a portable camera and videotape recorder and noted to Terry that the streets of Metropolis were turning into a swamp. Terry, huddled close to Clark, asked if he thought Chalky was responsible. Solomon Grundy's name is Solomon Grundy, not Solomon Chalky. Ah, uh, Terry was referring to your chalk white features, Mr. Grundy. Solomon Grundy, don't understand. Grundy also white as snow. Why not pretty Terry girl call me Snowy? Entity Solomon Grundy is also as white as whipped cream, so Entity Terry Cross could refer to Entity Solomon Grundy as creamy. Solomon Grundy like the sound of Solomon Creamy. Well, your rough exterior does not really call to mind metaphors that are as soft and smooth as... Why little professor man say Solomon Grundy rough? Solomon Grundy moisturize twice a day with swamp water. Perhaps you should increase your moisturizing regimen to three or four times a day. It can make a considerable difference. Solomon Grundy gets swamp water out of refrigerator after we finish Wonder Show podcast. Is that what's in that large container? Ugh. It's next to my Rocky Mountain oysters. Ugh. Let us get back to the story. Terry asked Clark if Chalk, er, uh, Grundy was responsible for Midtown Metropolis becoming a swamp. The Clark Kent beside her, whoever he really was, trembled, stating that he was so scared that he didn't know what to think. Terry thought that Clark's fear was just an act, and was calling him on it, before she pointed to a caped figure emerging from the swamp waters behind her. Clark yelped with fright as he was surprised by the figure of Superman, who had once again taken flight in pursuit of Solomon Grundy. 
Well, this Clark Kent sure was a yellow-bellied juniper. It certainly appeared so, Mr. Manning. Page 12 followed the Man of Steel as he soared over the swamp-flooded street toward Grundy, who had picked up two pedestrians roughly by their collars. He reasoned that Terry must have convinced Clark to bring her along on his on-the-scene reporting assignment, which complicated matters considerably. Because as long as Terry was around, Superman could not have Clark revert to his true identity of... Steve Lombard. And we were then treated to a brilliant two-panel flashback of how Superman managed to pull off this double identity trick. In the first flashback panel, there was a wonderful shot of the real Clark Kent forcibly dragging Steve Lombard by his sport coat out of the studio, brilliantly depicted with a simple silhouette of a distinctive new studio camera. Superman stated that he acted at super speed to whisk Lombard out of the studio and, quote, gave him a dose of super hypnotism. This was a superpower I did not know Superman actually had, but was quite obvious what it could do. Through suggestion, Superman made Lombard believe that he was actually Clark Kent. And the second panel of this flashback was a thin horizontal panel that had taken up about one-fifth of the page, yet it contained 18 afterimages of Clark and Lombard in the studio dressing room. It showed the progression of how Superman applied a liberal amount of makeup and a voice modulator to make Lombard look and sound like Clark Kent. Then it showed how Superman stripped Lombard out of his leisure suit and dressed him into Clark's blue suit. Noting that since the two of them were about the same build, Clark's clothes would fit Lombard well enough for no one to notice the difference. And once he was finished, and this was done in a matter of seconds, by the way, Superman returned the disguised Lombard to the news studio in Clark Kent's place, with no one being the wiser. Well now, I guess we see how tough this Steve Lombard hombre really was, seeing how he jumped a country mile when he saw Superman fly out of the sewer back in page 11. Well, perhaps, Terraman, but my view is that, because Superman used super hypnotism to make Steve Lombard think he was Clark Kent, that would mean a Clark Kent as viewed by Steve Lombard. And that is most likely why the Clark we saw on page 11 was overly timid and openly admitted how scared he was entering the battle zone. Superman had always portrayed Clark Kent as, well, mild-mannered, but he would still stand up for himself in situations where he had to, but usually with clever banter and never resorting to violence. And to a stereotypical long-time athlete like Steve Lombard, that equated to being a meek weakling, and that is why I think Lombard was taking this portrayal of Clark Kent to such an extreme. But yes, I usually saw Steve Lombard as the type of brash character that would talk tough, but be one of the first to flee at the sign of danger. However, that was not really the case. For example, in Action Comics Volume 1, Issue 461, Steve Lombard was attacked by an alien menace named Carbrock, and he had ample opportunity to flee when Superman arrived to the fight, but Lombard instead grabbed a video camera to bravely record a super-powered battle happening just a few feet away from him, and he was almost killed by doing so. But let us get back to this story. First, though, let me put this here spare force field poncho on ya. There you go. Pretty snazzy if I do say so myself. Ah, thank you, Terraman. 
I trust I will not really need this, though, right, Grundy? Grundy not over-attack you again. Very good, sir. And speaking of attacks, Superman decided to go on the offensive, using a Nova Blast of heat vision to boil the swamp water at Grundy's feet, which made the marshland monster drop the two people he was holding. Another page turn later, Superman quickly used his super breath to blow the two dropped pedestrians into a nearby building doorway so they would not boil alive in the superheated swamp water. A rather undignified rescue, yet effective. Indeed. And it was then that Superman realized that he had no idea where the swamp water was coming from. He had a feeling it was tied to Grundy's mysterious appearance on Earth-1, and yet he... Grundy hurt by hot water by Flying Man. So Grundy grabbed Flying Man's cape and pulled him down to Grundy. All Grundy want was to find the other one, but Flying Man not leave Grundy alone. Superman tried to ask what Grundy had meant by the other one, but was interrupted by a stunning punch in the face by a massive white fist. Grundy not listen to Flying Man. Grundy drowned Flying Man in swamp water. Then Flying Man not stop Grundy from finding other Solomon Grundy. Perhaps not, Superman responded, but he could sure try. Pressing his hands against the street under the water, the Man of Steel swung his powerful legs upward to kick Grundy away from him. Now hold on there, partner. I cannot see Superman's arms under the water in this here panel thar. So how do you know he braced his hands against the street? Well, judging from the position of Superman's body in panel 5 of page 13, and the way the swamp water is sliding off the back of his cape, I could tell that Superman was essentially using his unseen arms to push his entire body out of the water to add momentum to his kick. It was a very clever effect by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name! We are now on page 14. And in the first panel, Grundy was regaining his balance while Superman rose out of the swamp water once again. But this action was taking place far in the background, observed by various onlookers in the foreground. These included three police officers, two of which were on horseback, that were presumably conducting crowd control. This was another brilliant example of how Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name! continued to apply a strong sense of setting to establish a realistic grounding of this bombastic battle. And I should also credit the writer, Jerry Conway, as he may have included this panel setup in his script. Flying Man tried to get away, but Grundy catch him. Grundy must smash Flying Man! As Grundy started to give chase to the low-flying Superman, the Man of Steel had finally caught on to the plot that the readers had known all along. He realized that Grundy had fought both the Justice League and the Justice Society, and we will get to that in a moment. Also, Grundy knew about the parallel Earths, so perhaps he had also realized the implications. Superman knew that Grundy had always been alone, and logically, he would also be lonely as well. If Grundy had thought that there might be another Solomon Grundy on Earth-1, then he might have made his way here to find his other self. Solomon Grundy been saying that the whole time. Is little Professor Man mansplaining for Grundy again? Oh, uh, no, 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 sir. Superman was doing the mansplaining. Right here, on page 14. See? Arr, Grundy hate mansplaining. Grundy smash flying man even more. As Grundy was almost within reach of the flying Superman's boot, the action ace contemplated that the waters of Slaughter Swamp must have somehow granted powers to Grundy beyond his understanding, including the ability to travel from one dimension to another, 
and to somehow bring the Swamp Blight with him and infect Metropolis. That is a might concise and might convenient explanation. Perhaps so, but there had been a history of the waters of Slaughter Swamp being much more than they appear, ever since they had first created Solomon Grundy. Lanos. Greetings and salutations. I am Lanos, the lexical archive that missed his entrance oration. How may I serve you today? I believe now is the ideal time to pause the story and remind Terraman and the listeners of how Solomon Grundy came to be, as well as review the numerous rampages that led to Solomon Grundy's imprisonment in Slaughter Swamp at the beginning of this comic book. Acknowledged. Entity Solomon Grundy, this is your life. Yes, that is right. The marshland monster Master of Mayhem was not always the powerful dimension-hopping Superman smasher that he was in this story. And here, now, surrounded by the familiar faces uh, and icon of his Done in One Wonders podcast Wonder Show co-hosts, we will now take a journey through the history of Solomon... <laughs> what in thunderation are you doing, Professor? I was thinking of adding an extra bit of British tele-dimension to the recap, and... Uh... No? No. Perhaps I should commence the abridged recapitulation of the Solomon Grundy entry from Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Volume 21, page 16. In 1894, a man named Cyrus Gold was murdered in Slaughtered Swamp outside Gotham City on Earth 2. His remains were never found, but instead lay in a bog for 50 years. During that time, bits of rotten wood and leaves accumulated about the skeleton, and gradually formed into a gigantic humanoid creature that somehow achieved a strange form of life. One Monday night in 1944, this strange creature emerged from the bog in Slaughter Swamp. He confronted two escaped criminals and took their clothes. The next day, the creature came upon a hobo camp where he had met a criminal gang. When asked his name, the creature replied that he had none, but that he had been born on Monday. One criminal remarked he was like the nursery rhyme character, Solomon Grundy, who was born on a Monday. The creature adopted this name as his own. Grundy was born with some knowledge, such as how to speak English, but was ignorant of many other things. Seeing his superhuman nature, the criminals made Grundy their leader and embarked on a series of robberies in Gotham City. During the first robbery, Grundy clashed with who was to be his greatest enemy, the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Grundy tried to kill the Emerald Crusader, but the gallant heroes survived. Green Lantern finally defeated Grundy by hurling him into the path of an oncoming train. And that was pretty much the story from Solomon Grundy's first appearance in All-American Comics, Volume 1, Issue 61. Solomon Grundy's next appearance in Comic Cavalcade, Issue 13, revealed that the train essentially pushed Grundy down into the wet earth beneath the tracks and buried him. He was uncovered by a criminal gang, whose scholarly leader force-fed Grundy's lifeless body with a concentrated form of chlorophyll, the chlorophyll not only revived Grundy, but seemed to increase his intelligence somewhat, 
as he eventually started to speak in complete sentences and eventually outsmarted the criminal leader to take over the gang. But the chlorophyll also accentuated the plant matter in Grundy's body makeup, turning his skin green and requiring him to have to breathe carbon dioxide. It also made him a little susceptible to the green light of the lantern's ring. Similar to how green light has been shown to have detrimental effects on plant growth by hampering the process of photosynthesis. Because that particular color frequency is typically reflected by plants instead of absorbed. That was probably the scientific basis behind the reasoning in the story, yes. Some studies have shown that green light can reverse the stem growth in certain plants, while making other plants germinate more quickly. How very interesting. Thank you, Lanos. Red light generally results in stronger plants, while blue light is helpful for growing leaves. Uh, yes, thank you again. Going back to the story, in addition, red light, when mixed with blue, can assist with the flowering portion of the... Excuse me, Lenos, but can we stay on topic? This is not the topic? No, we are going over Solomon Grundy's publication history. Back to Comic Cavalcade, issue 13. Grundy could now be affected by the lantern ring, but just a little. Green Lantern actually had to exhaust him first by chasing him across the country. Then he was able to successfully encase Grundy in an airtight green energy bubble and left him in a petrified forest. The Lantern figured that once Grundy exhausted all the carbon dioxide that was trapped in the bubble, he would turn white again and become as petrified as his surroundings. Grundy did revert to his white-skinned state, but he was not petrified. He was still quite mobile in All-Star Comics Volume 1, Issue 13, when a bolt of lightning freed Grundy from his Emerald Prison. He then had a multi-chapter battle with various members of the Justice Society of America on his journey to seek revenge against the Green Lantern. After the Justice Society managed to subdue Grundy as a team, Green Lantern used his ring to fly Grundy to the moon, trapping him there forever. Or so he had thought. In Comic Cavalcade, issue 24, Grundy managed to return from the moon by... Okay, brace yourself for this one, listeners. By learning the secret of anti-gravity on the moon and riding a light wave reflected by the mirror of a giant telescope of the Gotham City Observatory that just happened to be viewing the moon at that time. I know. Another trick Grundy claimed to have learned on the moon was the ability to cast an illusion so he would look like a normal person. In this case, the observatory scientist, who also just happened to be the long-lost son of a millionaire so Grundy could actually become the heir to his fortune and... <sighs> okay, please keep in mind that this was in 1947, when several Golden Age comic stories were driven more by imagination than logic. In any case, Green Lantern put a stop to Grundy's plan and encased him in a giant power ring bullet and shot him into the center of the earth. Now, it was not fully clarified exactly how Grundy learned these moon abilities, but he never did use them again. And actually, when we look at Grundy's next published appearance, which was in Showcase Volume 1, Issue 55, which was a Silver Age story featuring Dr. Fate and Our Man, the story seemed to completely disregard the comic Cavalcade 24 story. In this issue, Grundy was again back on the moon, though it was referred as another planet, just as it was actually in All-Star Comics 33. 
Roy Thomas would actually fix this continuity error in the first story arc of his All-Star Squadron series that was published in the early 1980s. The time-traveling villain, Per Degaton, plucked Grundy from his 1947 bullet prison from Comic Cavalcade 24 to use as his muscle henchman against the Justice Society and the All-Stars in 1941. At Degaton's defeat, he preset his time machine to return Grundy to 1947, but back to the moon instead of to the center of the Earth. Degaton also noted in All-Star Squadron Issue 3 that the time travel process made Grundy lose, quote, what little sophistication he had acquired. So in the All-Star story and from Showcase 55 forward, Grundy was essentially the simple-minded brute that he was back in the beginning of his, er, life. In addition, Grundy had also forgotten whatever tricks he had learned on the moon to escape the last time, and was apparently unable to learn them again. But back to Showcase Volume 1, Issue 55. Grundy was freed from his lunar imprisonment by the attraction of a near-passing meteor. It drew Grundy off the moon's surface and sent him plummeting back to Earth. Grundy then straightaway returned to Slaughter Swamp, the place of his birth, which at this time had been polluted by the radioactive waste from the cyclotron used by the Tyler Chemical Company plant, which was owned by Rex Tyler, the Hour Man. So, yes, Rex Tyler was involved in creating a localized ecological disaster. But the story essentially treated the dumping of radioactive waste as an everyday action, something all companies with a cyclotron would typically do in 1965. The story focused instead on how the radioactive swamp waters granted Grundy a new set of strange powers that enabled him to mentally control wooden objects though these powers must have been temporary since he did not use these abilities in later stories. Hmm. Solomon Grundy still got it. Grundy just forgot Grundy could do that till little professor man reminded me. Okay, Grundy, that's impressive, but let's not- Grundy wanna see who'd win in a fight. The coffee table or the bookshelf. Oh, now wait a minute, Grundy, don't- I'd say we call that a draw. A, a more, more accurate, accurate assessment, assessment would be mutually assured destruction. This is fun. <sighs> it looks like we have to go shopping at Ikea afterwards. Say, Grundy, why don't you use your wood manipulation powers to fix the hole in the floor? Solomon Grundy already fixed floor with dining table. <sighs> we will talk about that later. Back to Showcase Volume 1, Issue 55. The story also revealed that anyone submerged in the waters of Slaughter Swamp would also become a Grundy-like monster as well. This fate had befallen Green Lantern Alan Scott for a few pages in this showcase story, until Dr. Fate reversed the process, and eventually Green Lantern and Dr. Fate imprisoned Grundy within an orb of combined magical energy, which was put in orbit around the Earth. Grundy would later be freed from this prison by the antics of the Antimatter Man in Justice League of America, Volume 1, Issue 46, and Grundy would eventually be manipulated to fight the Earth-1 Batman foe, the Blockbuster, in Issue 47. This story ended with the two monstrous men literally knocking the hate out of each other, and it was not determined what the Justice Society had actually done with the now very friendly and hugging Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy not remember much of that. That's actually no surprise, Grundy. 
It was established in the Showcase 55 story that you would eventually be drawn to return to the waters of your birth in Slaughter Swamp, which was where comic readers would next see you in Justice League of America Volume 1, Issue 91. I presume at some point between this story and Issue 47 that you eventually made your way back and that the radioactive swamp waters rejuvenated your hateful nature. After fighting the combined teams of the Justice League and Justice Society, which included the supermen of both groups, you were eventually imprisoned within Slaughter Swamp, behind an energy shield formed by the combined power rings of the Green Lanterns from both Earth-1 and Earth-2. Which led us to this story in Superman Volume 1, Issue 301, in which the Swamp had granted Solomon Grundy the power to travel across dimensions. You said you had a theory or two about how that happened. I do. One theory is that Grundy's drive to go to Earth-1 enabled him to summon enough willpower to actually control some of the green psychoplasmic energy that comprised the Green Lantern Shield. And it was that energy that gave him the power to essentially cross the dimensional barrier from Earth-2 to Earth-1. Query. Assuming this theory is correct, why did not Grundy's desire to escape at the beginning of this story force the Green Lantern energy to simply release him? Well, Grundy's wish to be free did not seem to have any purpose other than to just be free, whereas the reason to travel to another Earth was to seek another Solomon Grundy. And I believe his desire for a friend was even stronger than his initial desire to escape, and thus amped his willpower to the point where he could control the green energy, albeit inadvertently. I suspect that some residual Green Lantern energy may have been absorbed by Grundy's body, which may explain how he was able to prevent Superman from being able to lift him back on page 10, because Solomon Grundy simply did not want to be moved, and the fact that one of the Green Lantern rings involved was magical in nature. I see. What's your other theory? Because comics. Well, you can't argue with that. And now that we have summarized Grundy's history and the various powers Grundy had gained over the years, let us take another podcast promo break, and when we return... We will resume where we had left off in the story of Superman, Volume 1, Issue 301. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf Editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Parabek. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. The Who's Who Podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. Welcome back to the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. We are in the final stretch of the amazing story within the beautifully rendered Superman Volume 1, Issue 301. Solomon Grundy wins on a Monday. 
We had left off with Superman, who had been trounced three times in a midtown metropolis battle by the immensely powerful Solomon Grundy, flying away in a somewhat slow retreat, with a very angry Solomon Grundy sprinting after him in pursuit. Grundy had arrived in Earth-1 Metropolis, directly from his Green Lantern-created prison in Slaughter Swamp on Earth-2, thanks to a newly acquired ability to travel through dimensions. Solomon Grundy walked to other Earth to find other Solomon Grundy, except Flying Man kept bothering Grundy, so Grundy gonna smash Flying Man for good. Well, to be fair, Grundy, you were causing systematic damage to that area of the city, as well as injuring a number of people in your methodical search for your double. He also caused a flood by a mysterious swamp blight that was spreading throughout the streets of Metropolis. Meanwhile, to secure his secret identity of Clark Kent, who at the time was conducting a live newscast at the WGBS News Studio, and later on the scene of the battle, Superman had hypnotized and disguised his overbearing colleague, Steve Lombard, to take his place. But back to Superman's slow, low-flying retreat from Solomon Grundy in the middle of page 14, with Grundy tipped forward in a full sprint and just about to grab the Man of Seal's boot. I know for a fact that old Soupy is faster than that. He should be getting a wiggle on. Ah, Superman did precisely that in the next panel. In another beautiful sequence of five super speed after images rendered by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name! The action ace arced above his monstrous foe to grapple him behind his back. The Man of Steel had actually lured Grundy to chase after him so the forward motion would throw Grundy's body off balance. That way, Superman was now able to lift Grundy off the ground and fly him up, up, and away from the swamp-flooded city streets. How long have you been wanting to say that? From the very beginning of this podcast, Mr. Manning. Grundy not like being carried by Flying Man. Grundy wanted to kill Flying Man. Superman did not put up with your struggling for very long, Grundy. On the top of page 15, Superman reasoned that on the ground it was almost impossible to beat you. And in the air, neither of you could win in a fight, so he decided to take the battle to the water and dropped you into Metropolis Bay, near where a cargo liner was anchored offshore. Flying man make mistake this time. Solomon Grundy grab ship anchor chain on way down. Uh, Grundy, hold on. Grundy do more than hold on. Grundy pull on chain. No, I mean that is the... Chandelier. Uh, oops. Proceeding with another amendment to the online order form for pickup at Home Depot. Be sure to charge it to Solomon Grundy's bill. Ha! Joke's on you! Solomon Grundy have no money! I suppose we could just rob the depot. There will be no robberies, gentlemen, as per our agreement. T'was only joshing with you, Professor. It is fortunate for you that Namiko hated that light anyway, so I will cover the new fixture, but you have to install it. And by you, Grundy, he meant me. Locating all available lighting fixtures available for pickup at the Daily City locate. We can shop for it after the program, Lenos. Thank you. Grundy, how about you retell this part of the story without the pantomime? Solomon Grundy glad to. Grundy hate mimes. Mimes are all quiet and creepy. And Grundy hate mime pants, too. Uh, yes. Please proceed, Grundy. Solomon Grundy, underwater in Metropolis Bay. Solomon Grundy, pull on cargo ship anchor chain. Pull cargo ship down into water. 
Now Flying Man leave Grundy alone, while he busy saving ship, Solomon Grundy go free. That was a pretty ingenious way to make Superman break off his pursuit. Solomon Grundy smart. Solomon Grundy smarter than Flying Man. Indeed, Mr. Grundy. In fact, in the next impressive panel of Superman breaking the surface and speeding toward the capsizing boat, the Man of Tomorrow admitted to himself that you, Solomon Grundy, had won the fight. Ha! Grundy better than Flying Man! Superman acknowledged that he had been underestimating you at every turn of the battle, and thus he deserved to lose. <sighs> Superman stated that he deserved to lose because he had been relying on his brawn and not his brain. But as of that moment, that reliance on his brawn was over. And to punctuate the point of the Man of Steel's decision to start using his head, figuratively speaking, Superman literally used his head to break the massive anchor chain pulling the ship. The next page showed that the boat had already capsized. Cleverly depicted as a thin motion line in that small panel, Superman dived and arced underneath the water toward the submerged starboard side of the imperiled ship. He thought to himself that he needed to come up with an ingenious plan to stop Grundy's rampage, and ruminated on what he had done with Steve Lombard earlier in the story. Then, in a large, impressive panel meticulously drafted by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name! The tiny silhouette of Superman lifted the massive, now upright ship out of the water of the bay, and realized that he knew exactly what he needed to do next. The scene then shifted in the next panel to the Metropolis waterfront. The caption box stated that it was now 7.58 p.m. on the Monday of Solomon Grundy's triumph. Solomon Grundy climb out of water onto funny wood bridge that don't cross water. You mean a pier? No, that was other Solomon Grundy. Grundy say Grundy climb out of water, but other Solomon Grundy did appear, as little professor man say. Actually, I did not... Right. No mansplaining. Sorry. Please continue. Other Solomon Grundy appear on Funny Wood Bridge. Other Grundy say he was Solomon Grundy on that earth. And other Grundy looking for other Grundy too. And now that other Grundy find other Grundy, which is Grundy Grundy, now we not be alone anymore. Other Grundy call Grundy friend. Other Grundy and I talk for a little while, get to know each other better, admire other Grundy's clothing style. Grundy about to share skin moisturizing tips when other Solomon Grundy fly Grundy away from Funny Water Bridge. Other Grundy say we must go where we not be hunted. Grundy follow his friend. Wait a minute. The Earth One Solomon Grundy could fly? That would Solomon Grundy say. Grundy once learned secret of anti-gravity and how to ride reflected light waves. Little Professor Man say so. So why not other Solomon Grundy fly? I see your point. Other Solomon Grundy fly Grundy to moon. Grundy been to moon before, twice, like Little Professor Man say. Grundy not sure why Grundy's go to moon. Grundy much rather be in swamp. Grundy miss swamp. Grundy hate being on moon before. But this time, different. This time Grundy not be all alone on moon. Grundy on moon with friend. Grundy wanted to ask other Grundy why we were on moon. But other Grundy, he, he fly away. Other Grundy fly away and leave 
Grundy all alone. Grundy not understand. Other Solomon Grundy like me. So, so why other Solomon Grundy not like me? Oh, oh man. Entity Terror Man, what is the matter? I'm not crying. You're crying. I am incapable of crying. Sure, just rub my nose in it, you light box of bolts. Grundy, I am so sorry. When I planned to feature my first Solomon Grundy comic book on this episode, I did not expect that it would hurt you this much. No, no, Grundy. Okay. Nothing, nothing can hurt Grundy. Solomon Grundy unfazed by painful desertion. Uh... Okay. Very good, sir. If you prefer, you do not have to continue with- Solomon Grundy say, Solomon Grundy fine. Little Professor Man continue with story. Very well. In the next panel, we could see what Solomon Grundy could not. As the Earth One Solomon Grundy flew away from the moon, he removed his head mask to reveal the face of Superman underneath. Superman thought to himself that- Flying Man! Other Solomon Grundy was flying man? Uh, yes, he essentially made himself to look like another Solomon Grundy, just as he had made Steve Lombard look like Clark Kent earlier in the Flying man tricked Solomon Grundy. Solomon Grundy hate being tricked. Solomon Grundy hate flying man. You can chalk that up to another bout of super dickery. Query. Super dickery? Terraman is referring to the numerous times Superman had been uncharacteristically cruel to his friends during the Silver Age and Bronze Age era of Superman comics. These types of stories were designed to catch the reader's attention, basically enticing them to buy the comic book to find out why Superman was acting so out of character with Jimmy Olsen or Lois Lane or, or even Batman. And because this formula worked, it was often repeated. However, in many of those... Uh, super dickery stories, Superman usually had a noble reason behind his unkind actions, and thus usually showed no signs of remorse once the reason was revealed. If anything, it would typically be the victims of Superman's cruelty who expressed remorse, for they regretted having doubts about their hero while being subjected to said cruelty. This was one of the reasons why I tend to see Superman's friendships in the Silver and Bronze Age to be more like abusive relationships. And the fact that the abuse was delivered from both sides did not help matters. But back to the story. Yes, I agree that Superman tricking Grundy into trusting him like this was indeed a cruel move. He did have a good reason for doing it. As Superman had put it, he was dealing with, quote, a menace that had to be disposed of for the common good. However, unlike most of the super dickery stories of the past, Superman actually felt a pang of remorse here. As Superman flew back to Earth, he admitted to himself that he felt rotten for what he had done to Grundy. There were times when being a Superman was not a fun job, he thought to himself, and this was definitely one of those times. Flying Man should feel bad for what he'd done to Grundy. For Grundy smash Flying Man next time he see him. I understand completely why you feel that way, Grundy. And the fact that you stopped smashing up the studio demonstrates that the Flying Man was wrong about you being a menace. Sometimes you just get a little too emotional. Ha! Little Professor Man get Grundy. Grundy like Little Professor Man. Grundy want to drown you in slaughter swamp, so little Professor Man be Grundy like me. Then Grundy's be friends. 
as attractive that prospect sounds, that really isn't necessary, Grundy, because we are already friends, are we not? Oh. Aww. Mr. Manning. What? That was the perfect sound effect. Cowboy man, be quiet. Let Grundy's friend finish story. Uh, thank you, Grundy. Let's do that. We only have the last two panels to go on the bottom of page 17. The caption box of the left panel noted that it was now Tuesday morning at 9.03 a.m. Clark Kent leaned over an open window within the Galaxy Broadcasting Building. He stood next to the now-restored Steve Lombard, who was wearing the same leisure suit as the previous day, by the by. Clark mentally noted that with Grundy no longer on the scene, Metropolis and Steve Lombard were back to normal. Clark and Lombard were watching city sanitation workers on the street below, using sweepers and bulldozers to push the swamp water into a curbside sewer drain. Clark again noted to himself that the slaughter swamp blight had essentially ceased, though it had, quote, left enough slop on the streets to keep the sanitation department working overtime for a month. The right panel is a continued shot from inside the drain as the slaughter swamp sludge splashed into the sewage waters. As far as anyone knew, there was no Solomon Grundy of Earth-1. Clark wondered what would have happened if Solomon Grundy had been right, and if an Earth-1 counterpart had existed after all. And the ever-omniscient caption box responded, Perhaps someday we'll know, Clark. Perhaps Solomon Grundy simply arrived too early. And that was the end of Solomon Grundy Wins on a Monday from Superman, Volume 1, Issue 301. But Solomon Grundy not really win. Solomon Grundy lose to Flying Man. But did you really, Grundy? To summarize, this 17-page story contained essentially 11 pages devoted to your fierce battle with Superman. And on four occasions, you actually had overcome the Man of Steel's efforts to stop you, including that rather ingenious plan on putting a cargo liner in jeopardy, knowing that Superman would have to go save it. While Superman did manage to stop you at the end, he only stopped you once. And that was only by using... super trickery. Trickery dickery, more like it. But you did best old Supey four out of five, Grundy. Ha! Solomon Grundy win more than Flying Man! Exactly. And of course, what was truly marvelous was the artwork. The draftsmanship of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name! had given Jerry Conway's delightful story a cinematic quality, especially in the two-page spread sequences. He also utilized a variety of dramatic camera angles and had brilliantly conveyed large-scale action in even the smallest of panels. There was just so much packed into these 17 story pages. And again, his use of facial expressions and body language were magnificent, from Solomon Grundy's lumbering gait, to Terry Cross's awestruck postures, to Steve Lombard's contemptuous reactions. And again, Bob Oxner's finishes provided just the right amount of his own style to enhance the elegance of the pencils without overshadowing them, as some other inkers of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name. had done in other stories. And while the showdown between Grundy and Superman was the primary plot, the story also introduced an intriguing criminal organization called Skull, 
It also introduced a new facet to the private life of Clark Kent, showcasing his status as a television celebrity, as well as a very clever way of having Clark Kent and Superman appear in two places at the same time, which of course was never used again. I wonder if Terry Cross had put two and two together and realized that she did not see Superman and Steve Lombard together at the same time. That would have been an interesting notion, but I do not believe she had ever drawn that conclusion. Terry Cross had only made a half dozen appearances over a five-year period across the Superman, Action Comics, and Superman family titles. I had learned in Action Comics Volume 1, number 477, that her father was a large stockholder in Galaxy Communications, which may explain how she had easy access to the Galaxy building without being an employee. But other than that, Miss Cross was essentially portrayed as a young fangirl who had a crush on Clark Kent. She did form an all-female Clark Kent fan club that served to foil Clark's attempts to go into action as Superman on a couple of occasions, which meant that he had to secretly save the day while in his guise of Clark Kent. One of these stories involved Clark having to stop an attempted bombing of a discotheque with some... super disco dancing. But back to your question, Terraman. There actually was a time when a villain had believed Superman's secret identity was Steve Lombard. That was the Carbrock character that I had mentioned earlier, and he had drawn this conclusion in Action Comics Volume 1, Issue 460, which was why Carbrock attacked Lombard in Issue 461. What did that last caption box in this here story mean about Grundy maybe arriving too early? Well, the swamp light that Solomon Grundy brought with him from Slaughter Swamp had actually spawned a clone of Solomon Grundy in Superman Volume 1, Issue 319. This was the first of a four-part story that involved longtime Superman foe the Parasite. This would technically be the first appearance of the Solomon Grundy of Earth-1. Going back to my theory of Grundy tapping into the Green Lantern energy to enable him to travel from Earth-2 to Earth-1, I believe Grundy's desire to find a doppelganger also manipulated the Green Lantern energy to enable the Swamp Light from Earth-2 to spawn another Solomon Grundy. Is that Solomon Grundy the other Solomon Grundy from Chris Franklin's Show on a Monday podcast? Oh, right. I still need to talk to Chris Franklin about arranging a meeting. I am so sorry that slipped my mind. So our Grundy was still stuck on the moon. Was this where you plucked him out of that pre-crisis timeline to be on this here wonder show? Oh no. Grundy still had a number of adventures on Earth 2 after this story, fighting the Justice Society and later Infinity Incorporated. Though it was not quite fully explained how Grundy had managed to make his way back there. Grundy, remember. Grundy's sad on Moon because other Solomon Grundy left him alone. Grundy not know other Solomon Grundy was flying man. But then Grundy hear pretty music. Pretty music calling for Grundy. So Grundy walk off moon and walk toward music. And Grundy was back on earth again, in front of funny dressed Fiddler Man. Fiddler Man say he helped Grundy find Green Lantern. Then Grundy kill Green Lantern. But Grundy had to fight little Catman first. Then Flying Man and Flying Girl drop Grundy in Fire Mountain. Ah, okay. That pretty much summarized your next comic book appearance in All-Star Comics Volume 1, Issue 63, in which you joined the Injustice Society. You fought the Wildcat on Earth 2, at the shipping docks in Tokyo, Japan, before you were imprisoned in a nearby volcano for a time. 
And what you just told me, Grundy, explained what you said to Wildcat in that story about the Fiddler actually retrieving you from the Earth-1 moon. I actually wondered how the Fiddler was capable of doing that. But now I see that the Fiddler was merely summoning you with his fiddle, not actually knowing where you were. And now I know that it was your ability to walk across dimensions that enabled you to hear that musical summons and go to him. Like Grundy say, Funny Fiddler Man, bring Grundy back from Moon. Who were the flying man and flying girl who dropped Grundy into that there volcano? That would be the Earth 2 Superman and... Pretty flying girl had really big boobs. Power girl. They were all the way out to here. Look out. Well now, nice weather we're having. Grundy. Uh, uh-oh. We will talk about this later. Terraman, do you have enough force field ponchos to seal this up until you too can fix the wall? Uh, activating, activating override directive, directive Alpha 113. While our hosts are sorting out this insert situation here, why don't we switch to a podcast promo break? And when we return, we will pay a visit to the Dun-in-One-Wonders electronic mailroom. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding, comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back Back to to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Deep within the basement of a single-story suburban home in the outskirts of Daly City, California, the unabashedly conceited Professor Zoom took pity on classic DC comic book characters who found themselves out of work in the aftermath of one reality-altering crisis after another. So he gave them all jobs. In the Done in One Wonders electronic mailroom. You know how foggy it gets around here. If Terraman were not able to seal off that opening with a force field, we would have to... Solomon Grundy say he was sorry, and Grundy fix wall up real good. Fix the wall, and the floor, and the desk, and the dining table, and the bookshelf, and the coffee table, 
and the ceiling. Mind the table legs, Terraman. I see him. I actually saw him on my way out earlier. That's right. You would have. Oh, my apologies, Terraman. I am understandably a little upset. I think you're going to be worried about how upset your wife's going to be to see the whole wall of your studio knocked clean off. I already warned Amiko about it, but I do not want her to see it. Which is why she and I will be taking the kids down to Carmel this weekend while you help Grundy fix everything up. First though, let's record this mailroom segment. Maybe that'll help take all of our minds off of this. Lenos! Greetings and salutations. I am Lenos, the linguist. We know, we know. And Lamo was your name, oh. I already set up all of the files for you earlier, so why don't you rattle your hawks and get to them? I possess neither need nor fetlock to contain a hawk to rattle. I'll rattle his non-existent fetlock with a lead plum in his CPU if he don't accessing files. Located one email response and one voicemail response to the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show episode two. Call him the Space Cowboy. Thank you, Lenos. Proceed. Transcribing one of one email from entity Michael Bailey, subject futuristic cowboys from the past, received on October 16th, 2017 at 457 coordinated universal time. Entity Michael Bailey stated, First, let me say that this was another wonderful episode of your show. I am in awe of your ability to take a well-worn format, talking about comics, and manage to infuse new life into it by changing up the usual, here's a synopsis followed by commentary, or here's a synopsis with commentary dusted liberally throughout, and doing something new with it. This is not only impressive, but makes a show that is fun to listen to. Second, thank you for making me want to get off my butt and finally get serious about reading more Bronze Age Superman stories. There was a brief time in my mid-twenties when I thought all of that guff was silly, but as I have matured and grown as a fan of the Man of Steel and comics in general, I find the stories from the 70s and the early 80s to be more and more attractive. All of the imagination of the Silver Age with some relevance and deeper characterization thrown in. The villains and supporting characters introduced during that era may be silly to some, but to me they are new hills to climb and new character relationships to form. Even Steve Lombard, and he sucks all day. Thank you, Mr. Bailey. And I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment of the Bronze Age of DC Comics. Entity Michael Bailey continued, Third, in addition to being a great co-host, Terraman really shined as the villain in this issue. You made him sound like something more than a silly gimmick villain. He seemed vibrant and alive and interesting, so good job on that. Taint nothing to it. Just being myself is all. Finally, thank you for being another in-title-only professor. I got tagged with that moniker by a friend years ago, and in some circles it still sticks. My professor status does not have the built-in wordplay factor yours does, but it is nice to have another brother in faux academia. Again, well done, sir. You have made this issue come alive and gave me another hour or so of fantastic entertainment. 
I look forward to working with you in the future when the Manhunters take over. Regards, Professor Michael Bailey, so named by Big Honking Steve. Thank you again for all the kind words, Mr. Uh, Professor Bailey. And yes, I look forward to assisting you on your massive Millennium Podcasting project in 2018. Accessing one of one voicemail response received on November 6, 2017 at 2322 Coordinated Universal Time. Hello, Zoom. My name is Evelyn Tor, and I am a listener of your podcast. I also wish to extend my greetings to the macabre masters of mayhem that you call a cast. You poor soul. Uh, just calling to wish you well and to say that I have enjoyed your program immensely. Your telling of the Superman issue with Terraman was immensely entertaining and I found it very educational. I did not know about Terraman until actually until you, your episode. Thank you for everything and keep up the good work. I have enjoyed the Fire and Water Podcast Network and its many contributors, yourself included. I wish your show a long tenure and yourself only the best. Have a good day. Thank you very much, Mr. Latora, for your kind thoughts and wishes. It was my hope that this podcast would introduce and reintroduce listeners to long unused Bronze Age concepts and characters in an entertaining manner. It is quite possible that, given how the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast had led to Firestorm becoming a television character, and Aquaman a major motion picture star, perhaps this podcast will lead to Terraman being featured in a television show or movie one day. Uh, there's a post-hoc false cause fallacy to your logic, Lanos. Well, I'd already had my own live TV show before, but a movie, well now. Show host and audio editor's note. Terraman is referring to his creating a live television program as part of an elaborate scheme to kill Superman. From the storyline in Action Comics Volume 1, issues 468 to 470. If I'm ever in a movie, I want Kurt Nolan to play me. Hollywood should take note. And like Mr. Latora, you too can have your vocal feedback played on this podcast. Simply leave a voice message up to two minutes in length at area code 415-779-4668. Please note that voice messages we respond to may be edited for time. Now then, shall we see what feedback we have received on the Fire and Water podcast website? Located 14 responses from 13 listeners of the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show episode 2. Call him the Space Cowboy. The first response is from Rob Kelly, and he writes, Wonderful episode, Zoom. Someone should get this to Carrie Bates. I think he'd be touched and impressed. Someone would do this deeper dive on one of his stories, especially one so obscure. Well, I've never been shy about my lack of admiration for Kurt Swan's work. I will admit, you're completely right. He did manage to draw lots of different body types, something a lot of other artists don't bother with or weren't able to do. And while we all make fun of Terror Man as a mort, uh, what's a mort? 
a Middle English hunting term for the note sounded on a horn when the quarry is killed. Well, now, that don't sound mighty insulting at all. While we all make fun of Terraman as a mort, in retrospect, he's no more ridiculous than most Silver Age villains. Even though we don't see him full on on the cover, his beatdown he's imposing on Superman looks pretty dire. Darn tootin'. Mr. Kelly also says, The sheer amount of work you put into this podcast astounds me. It makes me feel lazy. I'm really thrilled we have you as part of the network. I am honored that you allowed me to be part of this fine network, Mr. Kelly. Thank you, sir. And I fail to see how I could possibly make one who produces so many podcasts on a weekly basis feel lazy. Solomon Grande, read response from Bruce Wayne Weaver. Bruce Wayne Weaver say, Easily one of best podcasts on network. Always entertaining and insightful. And successful in distracting me from work. Anxiously awaiting next episode. Thank you, Mr. Weaver. I trust the distraction from your work is actually a good thing? Entity Brian Linton on October 17, 2017 at 2359 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Let me join the throng in proclaiming my love for the format you've designed for this show. I don't know what I look forward to more. The next issue deep dive or the continuing antics of the Zoom crew. I respect and appreciate the amount of work that must go into each episode. The Zoom crew. That name don't sound too bad. We can rename the show as the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show starring Professor Yukanori and his amazing Zoom crew. While that does sound splendid, that is quite a mouthful. I was thinking the Done in One Wonder Show starring me, the Terror Man, and the rest of the Zoom crew. I will take that under advisement. Thank you for your kind words, Mr. Linton. Solomon Grundy, read response from Chris Franklin. Chris Franklin say, This is type of story that proves Superman 3 isn't so far off after all. Ulstrom is essentially Gus Gorman, the everyman that gets pulled into a fantastic series of events that Superman has to try to get him or her out of. Typical of Bronze Age stories, particularly those of Carrie Bates. Unfortunately, no one really wants average issue of Superman adapted into major motion picture. Therein lies the burn. That is a brilliant observation, Mr. Franklin. I seem to recall enjoying Superman 3 when I had first watched it on television, mainly because it did feel like a live-action Bronze Age Superman comic book. However, I did expect the movie to be something more than it was, especially since the description of the movie plot in the television program guide sounded like the Silver Age Superboy story in Action Comics Volume 1, Issue 255. Chris Franklin also say, Yes, yes, yes. Swan and Anderson were perfect for these types of stories about real people. Indeed they were. Chris Franklin not want to offend Mr. Manning, but he think if Bates and company scaled back some of Terraman's tricks and gadgets, he may have fared better. He had equivalent of Adam West utility belt to pull some pretty far-fetched weapons out of. An age-inducing Brandon Iron? Why not? Right, why not? I don't think I'd fire much better against old Soupy without my fancy doodad weaponry. When you're up against a super-powered hombre with a wagon load of fancy powers and moves like greased lightning, 
you need every advantage you can get. One time I even used magic on him. Show host and audio editor's note. Terraman is talking about the time he had learned a few magic tricks from his doppelganger on a parallel earth, which was ruled by the principles of magic instead of science. This happened in Superman Volume 1, Issue 377. Cowboy man have other cowboy man? Like other Solomon Grundy? This make Grundy happy for cowboy man. Chris Franklin also say, Fun show, as always, Zoom, and expertly crafted. Thank you, Mr. Franklin. And please advise on how I can get in touch with your friend, Solomon Grundy, so we can arrange a play date with my friend, Solomon Grundy. <sighs> that Edo Bosnar rode in again, saying, Man, finally found the time to listen to this episode today, and it was another great one. But then again, I expected nothing less. The issue covered here was slightly before my time. I jumped on board in about 1975, but I enjoyed the rundown nonetheless. Also, your announcements for coming episodes has me intrigued. There were in fact several really good done-in-one issues of the new Teen Titans. Of course, for the first few years, there were really simply no bad issues of that series. So I'm curious to see which you'll pick. Also waiting in anticipation for the GL and Soup stories you mentioned. I'm hoping that you'll also be showing some love for the done-in-ones and some of the mostly forgotten titles that fell victim to the DC implosion. Like Ragman, Black Lightning, etc. Thank you, Edo Bosnar. In regards to your DC implosion comment, I had considered a story from the first volume of Firestorm for my list, but quickly nixed that for obvious reasons. I am considering a Black Lightning story from a World's Finest Dollar comic that would have been published in issue 12 of his original title if the DC explosion had continued. Perhaps that would count? Entity Sphinx Magoo on October 18th, 2017 at 208 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Wow, this episode was a lot of fun. I've always been a fan of Terraman. Despite all his super science trappings, he always seemed like more of a fantasy-based character. The Winged Horse Nova put him squarely in the ranks of characters like Marvel's Black Knight and Valakree and DC's Shining Knight. Also, I wonder if there was an untold story where Terraman and Nova encountered Supergirl and Comet the Super Horse. Give me some time and I'm sure I can come up with a whopper of a tale about that Super Angelica. Though I'd rather make up a story about that hot toddy power girl and me kicking up a- Mr. Manning, please. Entity Sphinx Magoo continued. Later, post-crisis attempts at updating Terraman fell flat for me. I preferred his classic look and manner. He always made me think of Burt Reynolds in Clint Eastwood's Hombre Sin Nombre clothing. I always thought of Kurt Noland, but to each their own. The other item that fascinated me was the idea that this story followed a template established in other DC Silver Age stories. I hope this aspect is explored in future episodes. Thank you for your kind response, Sphinx Magoo. I do intend to continue to draw comparisons to Silver Age comics where appropriate in future story reviews. As Professor Bailey had stated, much of the Bronze Age stories were comprised of whimsical Silver Age concepts. 
Solomon Grundy read the next one. Ted Kilvington say, Another fine program, sir. I always get a kick out of Terra Man because he's so unlike other villains in Superman's rogue gallery. Also, for decades, he reminded me of local used car salesmen who airs cowboy-themed commercials, even though it's mid-Michigan. What? Some dude is taking my gimmick to honeyfogle them horseless carriages? That was not quite what Mr. Kilvington was saying. Entity, Entity Ted, Ted Kilvington was referring to Entity Terry Hanks, also known as the Sundance Man, from television advertisements for the Sundance Chevrolet dealership in Grand Ledge, Michigan. Ted Kilvington also say, For done-in-one story recommendations, with your cast of characters, I'd like to see DC Comics Presents number 8, with Superman and Swamp Thing take on dozens of Solomon Grundys. More Grundys? That does sound like a fun story to do. However, as I had stated previously, I am taking DC Comics Presents stories off the table because they would be covered in Siskoid's FW Team-Up podcast, but I have been a guest host on FW Team Up before. Perhaps the entire Zoom crew can tag along. Darren Sutherland wrote, Another awesome episode. The amount of time and effort you put into this show is evident, and it's obvious you love the material. Thanks for a show that is consistently impressive on all levels. Thank you, Mr. Sutherland. I am glad the effort shows and I hope that helps listeners to be more forgiving of this show not being quite as monthly as originally intended. Entity Martin Gray on October 19th, 2017 at 2153 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Truth be told, I found a little bit of Terraman went a long way back in the 70s. I was no cowboy fan, but hated that his name never matched his gimmick. Terraman? Why? Your space cowboy name makes much more sense. Or just Cosmic Cowboy. Or Kid Cosmic. I'm called the Terror Man because I come from Earth. And I needed to remind that Kryptonian sidewinder whom he was dealing with. But some people do call me the Space Cowboy. Some call Cowboy Man the Gangster of Love. Huh? And some people call him Maurice. What in thunderation are y'all talking about? Maurice? Entity Martin Gray continued, and he was around so very often. As new foes went, I much preferred Vartox or the Viking from Valhalla. Even that stupid Lynx was more welcome. Oh, I like that Lynx too, especially since I was able to take advantage of that loco situation to trap Superman inside a rock. Show host and audio editor's note, Terraman is referring to the events that transpired in Superman Volume 1, Issue 259. But I love this episode. I reread the issue in preparation and enjoyed it hugely. Hearing it discussed in the presence of Toby Manning himself, well, let's just say I am now a fan. I admire a man of impeccable taste. Terraman was even better here than on your first episode. Not as great as Grundy on the banjo. But who could be? I agree the art was amazing. From the thrilling Neil Adams cover with that unusually toned background to the splendor of Swanderson. And Carrie Bates did a great job transcribing the adventure he dreamt on Earth Prime while cuddled up with Elliot and Julie. Now that's a picture I can't get out of my brain. 
Almost every element of this episode was perfect. What would I change? I delete the background bleeps. They just disturb me. Well, we can't do that. Otherwise, the audio stitches will show. Terraman, Ixnay on Oddcasting Pay say. Entity Martin Gray's Obligatory Suggestion, Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, Issue 185. Ah, yes. Them. That would be a fun one, if I could arrange for an appropriate guest host. If it's that strappin' strapper I'm a-thinkin' of, I second the motion. Believe me, Terraman, you would not be able to handle her, because she will slat you flat if you make the attempt. Thank you for the kind words, Mr. Gray. I hope you continue to enjoy our little wonder show. Solomon Grinde, read response from Shag. Shag say, another wonderful episode with all caps on wonder. I realized while listening, I was remiss in leaving feedback for first episode. Sorry about that. Echoing everyone else, your story about Uncle Kenzo in first episode was truly heartwarming. Such a happy memory, and you did excellent job sharing it. Thank you, Shag. Shag also say, Some Bronze Age comics are hard for me to enjoy nowadays, unless Bob Haney involved. However, you have way of celebrating these issues that makes them compelling, and your production values are amazing. Your Terraman voice continues to crack me up. So happy to have you part of Network. I am glad you enjoy these Bronze Age tales as much as I do, Shag. I do have a few done-in-one wonders on my list that were written by Bob Haney, but I do not want to potentially impede on any further installments of your zany... What did this Shag feller mean by your Terraman voice? Entity Zoom Yukonori can actually perform a remarkable vocal impression of you. Yeah. Little Professor Man does it every time Cowboy Man not around. Is that so? Well, that is only in cases where I need to provide scratch vocals for our rehearsals while you are out. Let's hear it. Terraman, believe me, it really doesn't... Come on. Out with it. Very well. <clears throat> well, I'll tell ya, Superman. The Earth ain't big enough for the two of us. As previously assessed, remarkable. <laughs> that don't sound like me at all. That was what I was trying to tell you, sir. Right. Let's move on. J. Kevin Collier says, No sophomore slump here. You produced another top-notch episode. I have not read this particular issue, but your vivid descriptions really brought it to life. I could practically see the great Swanderson art in my mind's eye. Thank you, Mr. Collier. Given the obscurity of a number of the done-in-one wonders I have lined up, we aim to make it completely unnecessary to own the actual comic book or to have it in front of you to follow along, except when Grundy thinks I am mansplaining. And I realize that I neglected to mention that we do feature selected pages and panels from the comic stories we spotlight on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Mr. Collier also wrote, what I really appreciate is that you can have fun and be entertaining while still approaching the stories with a level of respect. There's a million blogs out there devoted to snarking on old comics, which is fine, and I can appreciate that style of commentary too. But it's nice to have someone who takes the books at face value 
and examines the craftsmanship involved without having to prove that you're hipper than the material. Thanks again for this delightful show, and I look forward to hearing more. Thank you, sir, and I agree, and not just because I don't believe I could ever be hipper than anything. These were simply comic stories that I have enjoyed in my youth, and in which I am still able to find joy today. I cannot promise that this podcast would be completely devoid of snarky commentary, however, especially given the story we'll be covering in our next episode, which was clearly a product of its time. Entity Ange on October 22, 2017 at 11.11 Coordinated Universal Time stated, Like others, I don't mind Terraman in small doses. I love the idea of a stereotypical outlaw cowboy somehow having enough gimmicks to be a threat. Thus, it is the magic combo of scary and ridiculous. Indeed, Dr. Ange, and that's why Terraman is awesome. Aw, you're just saying that count of my standing right here with five beans in the wheel. Entity Ange also responded to the inquiry about color x-ray scanners in the previous episode, stating, As for color imaging in medicine, it is out there but only for specific modalities. X-rays and CTs, or computerized axial tomography scans, and even MRIs, or magnetic resonance imaging, are pretty much shades of gray. MRI can have color, but at least in my experience, it isn't often used, and it certainly does not reflect the actual color of things. Ultrasound can have color, but mostly to represent flow towards or away from the sound signal. Again, this is arbitrarily red or blue, but not the actual color. And PET scans, or positron emission tomography scans, use color to show cellular activity, and not actual color. Love this show, Zoom. Nutty fun. Thank you, Dr. Ange. So we can surmise that either the X-ray machine used in Superman Volume 1, Issue 250 was ahead of its time, or its use of a green color on the screen to denote green lung was merely a coincidence. Given that the story had taken place in 1972, perhaps both. Indeed. What is next? Solomon Grundy, read last response from Jimmy McClinchy. Jimmy McClinchy say, Excellent show, Zoom. Hopefully you won't show Terraman what happened to his post-crisis counterpart in 52. I am sure if he read that, he would be torn apart. Little Black Adam humor there. Oh yeah, I read that third issue of 52. Serves that fuffy little greenhorn right to dare take claim to my name. I bet that soft-horned Superman Black Adam taint worth a scratch in a row with the real Terra Man. I would consider recalibrating your assessment, Entity Terra Man. According to my post-crisis DC Universe files, Entity Black Adam is, to use your vernacular, savage as a meat axe. Jimmy McGlinchey loved how involved you got into story, and look forward to hearing more done-in-one tales from you and your guest hosts. Thank you, Mr. McGlinchey. And you may be happy to hear that we will have a new guest host joining us in our next episode. I thought you said there was no guest host in the next one. That is correct, in a manner of speaking. Now I'm confused. It should make sense in the next episode. I do admit that I was initially confused while I was making the arrangements. And on that cryptic note, 
Let us acknowledge those who have helped promote our show on social media. Lenos? Episode 2 of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show has received Facebook likes, shares, and replies from the following entities. Abel Padilla Brian Ng Chris Franklin Corey Hodgson David Foster DeBeish Derek William Crabb Herbert Fung Jack Dower Keith G. Baker Lucia Desar Luke Dobb Max Romero Max Trevor Michel Siskoy Albert Oli Almeida Pat Sampson Rob Kelly Robert Ward Ryan Daly Shag Matthews Sean Brock Sean M. Myers and Terry O'Malley this here wonder show also received Twitter likes, retweets, and replies from Alexander Osias, Ange, Anthony Durso, Bill Beer, Bob Buster, Cash Flag, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, DS and RS. Earth 2 Chris Ed Moore Ed Moore Jr. Inigo Montoya Fanholes Podcast Firestorm Fan The Gar Podcast Greg at Son of Odin Lives History of Comics on Film Irredeemable Shag It's Plastic Man Jeffrey Davis, Jerry Ordway, Jim Ball, Joselito D, Longbox Crusade, Lauren Skinkiss Art, Mark Danvers, Max Romero, Punch Like a Girl, R.A.D. Adventures, Sean M. Myers, Ted Kilvington, Tim Price, Tim Rooney, Treasury Comics, Victor Perfecto, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Thank you all for your generous feedback and social media activity to help get this show noticed. If you wish to leave feedback for this show, please feel free to post a comment at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You may also send an email to wondersdone, and that is one word, at gmail.com. And again, you can call and leave a voice message up to two minutes in length at area code 415-779-4668. Voice messages we respond to will be played on the podcast, though they may be edited for time. And please, as always, feel free to suggest your favorite Done in One Wonder comic story for us to cover in a future episode. Thank you all again for listening, and a very special thank you to Will Rogers, also known as the Voice Man, who provided the voice of Superman in the show opening. Until the next one, we're done. Goodbye. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, 
via email at wondersdone at gmail.com or by voicemail at area code 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Done and One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and are believed to be covered under fair use. No money is made from this podcast, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with special thanks to Will Rogers for providing the voice of Superman. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Okay, just hold that up for another few seconds, Grundy. Thar. Now to use my molecular reconfigurator chaps to reconstruct the drywall. Cowboy man look funny swinging hips like that. It's how I have to get them to work. And why I never use them in a row with Superman. Thar, good as new. Grundy thank Cowboy Man for helping Grundy fix Wonder Show Podcast Studio. I really did it for the professor, Grundy. I owe him a lot for saving me and Nova from post-crisis oblivion. Now that I read the crisis picture books, I got a better understanding of it all now. And maybe I have the chance to fix it so I can change how that all happened. As soon as that lame finishes his... Little Professor Man saved Grundy too. From falling ice wall near Bird People City. Uh, I didn't quite catch all that, Grundy. Savior from what now? Giant ice wall. Grundy fight Green Girl in cold land outside Bird People City. Green Girl and Bird People trap Grundy. Then Bird People let Grundy go. Then Grundy go to a strange metal place with lots of funny dress people. Then Grundy back outside Bird People City and see Green Girl. Grundy fight Green Girl when Ice Wall attack Grundy from behind. So Grundy turn round and fight Ice Wall like this. Hold on, you big oaf. That's the stuff. Cowboy man, help Grundy fix Wonder Show Studio again? Grundy. For little professor man? <sighs> For the professor. Let me charge my traps.